Are you that weirdo that discovered chat rooms in the early 2000s? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hi, guys. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. Thank you so much for joining us for Happy Hour. Yes, and today for Happy Hour, we are drinking a twist on a French 75, which is kind of an iconic drink. Um, Mm -hmm. But I have a confession to make. Uh Uh-oh. I've been thinking about it, and I think gin is really giving tequila, in my opinion, a run for its money. Oh, really? Yes, I'm I'm a tequila girly, but... Lately, I've, I've, I think I might be converting to a gin girly. And I only say that because a French 75 is gin, some kind of simple syrup, and maybe some lemon juice, and then topped with your favorite sparkling wine. I like to use Prosecco. You're classy. That's why. <laughs> um, I love gin, but it does tend to give me a bit of a headache. I think, I don't know, maybe it's the juniper berries. Mm, yes, maybe. It gin seems to sneak up on me. Oh yeah. And anytime you mix anything with sparkling wine, it'll sneak up on you twice as fast. <laughs> yes. So per usual, our drink recipes and pictures are on Instagram. You can always hop over there, see what the drink looks like, and check out the recipe so you can try it yourself. Maybe we should call it a super sneaky French <laughs> 75. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, so let's get into this. Today, we are covering the shocking true crime case of John Edward Robinson, and he was a serial killer who was active in the Midwest from the 1980s to the early 2000s. And he's not the first, and he won't be the last, but he is known as one of the first serial killers to use the internet to lure his victims. Researching this case kind of freaked me out because the internet is such a large part of our daily lives now. And the fact that monsters like John Robinson lurk in the dark corners, victimizing people on a daily basis completely freaks me out. Uh, yeah, this was a lot to research. Mm-hmm. There is a lot to this case and um, I agree researching this and thinking about how much time we all spend online pretty fucking terrifying uh, yeah and I think what is kind of scary about the internet as far as other genres of crime I guess is the internet criminals on the internet seem to move at a faster pace than law enforcement can keep up so mm-hmm. crimes are happening and law enforcement, they're on like react to crimes instead of preempting and like mm-hmm. pre-policing, I guess. They're reacting. So criminals are, are moving at a much faster pace using the tools for the internet. And it, and it just takes a while for law enforcement to catch up, law enforcement agencies mm-hmm. to catch up. I mean, we're getting yeah. there, but think about like the early 2000s. Like it was a fucking wild west. Yeah, I get what you're saying. There's a kind of a lag there mm-hmm. in policing these crimes. But I think there's also the issue of people online say a lot of things, mm-hmm. 
And then what is the line that has to be crossed before law enforcement can act? Exactly. And this is kind of a a good example, this case of it, because of the kind of the the content of this case. It involves something that has a very fine line, very fine Mm -hmm. line. Yeah, 100%. So, well, uh, before we get into it, I want to issue um, a soft trigger warning. We're not going to get into the gruesome details of this case, but we will be discussing crimes against women. So just kind of a soft trigger warning, um, abuse in all forms. And also, uh, John Robinson will give you the ick. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's start with our source for this. Um, It is a book. We read a book on this one titled Anyone You Want Me to Be, A True Story of Sex and Death on the Internet. And this is written by John Douglas and Stephen Singular. And you might recognize the name John Douglas because because he is the OG of profiling. He is the guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And you might you might recognize a little book that he wrote um, by the name of Mindhunter. Rest in peace to the Mindhunter television show. I loved you too much, so you were canceled. That's just it's just like the way things are. So I and this is like Tiffany and I always talk about this when we talk about shows. I'm always nervous for her to really like a show because I know eventually it's going to be canceled. Just. Just like that. Not even eventually. Like very quickly it will be canceled. <laughs> I always feel like – I always feel that about um, like things on a menu. Like my favorite thing on the menu, I love it. And then it's like it's off the menu at a restaurant. And I'm like, what the hell? They're like only trash liked this. So we removed it. <laughs> Just very pointedly. <laughs> okay. So without further ado. She said it. I said it. <laughs> In Kansas, 1984, 19-year-old Paula Godfrey started working for a small company, Equi2. She worked as a sales representative, and this was located in Overland Park, Kansas. Just the year before, Paula was a high school senior with a 4.0 GPA and aspirations of becoming a figure skater for Walt Disney World. Paula told her parents the owner of Equi2 wanted to send her to San Antonio, Texas for clerical training. The owner picked Paula up from her parents' house and they headed to the airport. After a few days, her parents didn't hear from Paula, which was totally out of her character. Paula's dad, Bill, called the San Antonio hotel she was supposed to check into and discovered she had never checked in. The Godfreys were so freaked out, Bill, her father, flew to San Antonio and tried to look for her, but he unfortunately never found her there. And when he got back to Kansas, he went to Equi2 to talk to the owners, whose name was John Robinson. And Robinson basically stonewalled him, gave him no information, and at that point, clearly upset, Paula's dad said if they didn't hear from Paula in three days, there was going to be big trouble. So, so scary. As a parent, this is your worst nightmare. Yeah. Can you imagine going to San Antonio, just trying to find your daughter? I I just imagine him walking the streets, showing local businesses around the hotel her her picture and just, it's like your worst, your worst situation scenario that you can imagine as a parent. 
almost immediately after Bill Godfrey had visited John Robinson, a typed note showed up in their mailbox. The letters stated it was from Paula, and she didn't want to see them anymore. She was fine, and it was signed, Love ya, Paula. Her parents did not believe for one second that Paula wrote the letter. They brought the letter to the local police, but the police looked at the letter and said, Paula was of legal age, these things happen, and as far as the police were concerned, Paula wasn't a missing person. Her parents never heard from her again. God, it's just awful. And I would just think your parents would know better than a stranger, even if that stranger is in law enforcement. Your parents would know best if a letter is truly from you. Yeah. I would know if one of my children sent me a letter versus if somebody else wrote a letter from them, in my opinion. Yes. The following year, in 1985, Stephen Hames, a district supervisor with the Missouri Board of Parole and Probation, got a call from a social worker named Ann Smith, who worked at Birthright, which is kind of a center for unwed mothers. And they were a nonprofit group, and, and they, like I said, helped unwed young mothers to get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. So... Ann Smith called Stephen Hames because she had received a call from a local businessman who said he started an organization called Kansas City Outreach, and he described it as a program designed to provide job training, housing, and assistance to unwed mothers. The businessman, who went by the name John Robinson, sounded like a legitimate, philanthropic, good citizen However, when Ann Smith called him around Christmas time saying that they had a mother and a child available for his program, Robinson asked and discovered the mother and child were African-American and he refused to take them into the program. And Ann Smith said this this raised major red flags for her. So that's when she called uh, Stephen Hames. Unfortunately, Birthright wasn't the only place Robinson called to get unwed mothers and their children. The Truman Medical Center led Robinson to a 19-year-old Lisa Stassi and her four-month-old daughter Tiffany. In 1983, Lisa had moved to Kansas City after meeting a young sailor named Carl Stassi. Soon after they learned of the pregnancy, they were married. However, the marriage wasn't going well and Carl re-enlisted back into the Navy and left Kansas City off for, you know, the call of duty. Lisa moved into Hope House, determined to get back on her feet. So she was so ecstatic when the offer from a local businessman by the name of John Osborne came through. He met with Lisa and he said that he had an $800 a month silk screening job in Texas, or he would help her enroll in clerical training in Chicago. Either way, he wanted to help her get back on her feet. Originally, John Osborne said he was going to put Lisa and Tiffany up in a duplex in Olith Park, Kansas, and pay for all of their expenses. Anything they needed, he would pay for. But he ended up renting them a room at the Roadway Hotel with two other young women near the 
his business, Equity 2 office, in Overland Park, Kansas. While she was at the hotel, John had her sign blank pieces of paper at the bottom. When she questioned it, he said they were necessary to send letters back to her family when she was traveling. A day before she set to leave, she visited her sister-in-law, Kathy Klingensmith. Kathy Klingensmith said Lisa seemed nervous and maybe she shouldn't trust this guy and get help from this man. And then the strangest thing happened. John Osborne showed up in the middle of their conversation at Kathy's house and Lisa didn't tell him where she was going. And this wasn't just a random day. This was in the middle of a blizzard. So he tracked her down and drove in a blizzard to find her. When he got there, Kathy Klingensmith said he seemed tense and rush and he forcefully urged Lisa to leave. And he said, we needed to leave right now. Like right now we need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Kathy immediately didn't like his vibes. She didn't like him. She didn't like his the look in his eyes. She did not like him. Regardless, John convinced Lisa and Tiffany to go with him and he brought them out in a snowstorm and they disappeared. Later that night, Lisa called her mother-in-law, Betty, from the hotel and she was crying during the phone conversation and she thought it was very strange that John had coerced her into signing these blank sheets of paper. I... I'm so glad that she at least thought that it was strange because we'll see in this story, the signing blank pieces of paper is a pattern Mm -hmm. and it is such a bizarre thing for somebody to ask you to do. Mm -hmm. And um, researching this, Tiffany and I talked about it and I I said, honestly, as a 19 year old, I probably would have signed the pieces of paper. You have this what you think is a prominent local businessman trying to help mm-hmm. you. He asks you to do something. You want to be um, pleasant. You want to be polite. You want opportunities. So I, I, I probably would have signed the papers. I probably would have signed them too. I'm just saying on her part, at least she was realizing that things were not quite right. Yeah, she's definitely had more awareness than I probably would have had for sure. Um, so... Uh, Lisa was on the phone and with her mother-in-law, Betty, mm-hmm. and she was crying. And she said the only reason she signed the blank papers was because John told her that Betty, her mother-in-law, who she was on the phone with, was trying to separate her from her daughter, Tiffany. And right there during the conversation, Betty was like, no, I that is totally untrue. I d- I'm not trying to separate the two of you. Do not sign anything else. And she was like immediately panicked and worried. Then the conversation gets cut short. It's Lisa interrupts saying, you know, I've got to go. Here they are. And she hung up. And Lisa and Tiffany were never seen again. So awful. Mm -hmm. The next day, Kathy and David Klingensmith obviously had a conversation with Betty. They got together and were like, okay, we're worried about Lisa. So Kathy and David went to the Overland Park Police Department, the same police department that Lisa Stassi's parents went to. And this time, the Smith also contacted the FBI. Good for the, them. Yeah. So they, they have two kind of missing women. So the police went to the roadway inn, but they discovered that Lisa and Tiffany had 
already gone. They checked who paid the bill and it wasn't a John Osborne, but a John Robinson, the owner of a local company, Equi2. Okay, if this, this is so frustrating for me because for some fucking reason, the police never went to Equi2 to talk to John Robinson. They didn't think it was bizarre that John Robinson gave a alias, but then paid the bill with another name. Like they didn't think like, oh, hey, have you seen Lisa and Tiffany, a four month old infant? Like, nope, not worth the trip. Okay, well, fuck off. Yeah, I don't understand the logic there. And also John is Robinson, such an idiot. Why didn't he just keep using the fake name? Like everybody is pissing me off at this point. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for David Smith because he did go to Equi2 and he did talk to John Robinson and he got in his fucking face. So he said when he went there, John Robinson seemed sweet-natured, kind of quiet, short, pudgy, coming off as totally harmless. But when David kept pushing and kept asking questions and got in his face he said it was like a switch went off and his demeanor completely changed he became enraged and he actually physically pushed him out of the office and slammed the door in his face and then a few days later David and Kathy Klingensmith received a weird message, a phone message like an answering machine message from a father Martin at uh, the, the city's union mission, which was like a, a Catholic mission. Mm-hmm. And um, the message said, hey, this is Father Martin at Union Mission. Uh, I know where Lisa and Tiffany are. They're all right. That's it. Um, Like, okay, <laughs> fucking wild. All right. So David called Union Mission back and he learned that there was never has never been, and there wasn't a Father Martin there. I think I said that three, the same thing three times. (laughs) Total, this is a total bullshit lie. Also, they pulled something like this on Better Call Saul. Not to go off on a tangent, but it's just like such an easy lie to pull off. You can call and leave a message and say you're anybody. Exactly. Anybody can do it. Yeah. So... That basically was a dead end for the Klingon Smiths. And think about that. The chill going up your spine when you return the call and that person doesn't exist. Exactly. Imagine you call a Catholic mission and you're probably talking to a priest or a nun um, who you assume to be honest, mm-hmm. telling you there's never been a Father Martin here. Terrifying. Yeah. And it seems to be, here's the pattern emerging. A few days later, Betty... And the Smith started to receive signed letters from Lisa thanking them for all their help, but she decided to leave Kansas City for a fresh start with Tiffany. And now we're in 1987, and this is where Catherine Clampett comes in. Catherine Clampett moved from Texas to Kansas City to live with her brother for kind of a new start. She was um, described as independent, kind of with a wild streak, 
And um, her brother, when she got there, said, hey, let me um, help you find a job. I'd be happy to help you. And she was really determined on uh, doing things on her own and getting her life on track, Mm -hmm. you know, independently. So she found an amazing job opportunity in the local paper with a company by the name of Equi2. And it was owned by a John Robinson. She had an interview and he pretty much hired her on the spot. But her brother says soon after she started working at Equi2, Catherine started coming home less and less. And eventually she stopped coming home altogether. So her brother contacted the police and pretty much the police said the same thing as they had said before. She was of legal age. This kind of thing happens and they didn't. Uh, investigate it as a missing person it's <laughs> I'm just like trying to breathe through my rage here <laughs> does it happen though if you're living just a normal fine life I would like to know the percentage of people that just have a typical or just living a life and just are like well I'm gonna go disappear now and just Homer Simpson into the bushes like I would like to know how many people have actually done that which I know I can't because they disappeared but it just doesn't seem very likely it seems like the least likely scenario um I feel like throughout our lives we have known not a lot of people but a fair amount of people and not any one of them family and friends has just disappeared I mean lucky for us I but no one has written me a letter saying like I'm just gonna disappear I don't like you I want to be on my own never contact me again like that is suspicious and it does not happen all the time I I understand sometimes people do have to do that because they're living in super dangerous situations and I understand that it can happen but it it just doesn't happen as often as some people would like you to believe it does it's just frustrating I don't know if anyone's ever ran away at this point (laughs) I mean, it's just, it is frustrating. And I actually got ahead of myself because um, once Catherine Clampett's brother went to the police, the police did talk to John Robinson, but they determined that there wasn't evidence to open a missing persons case. Okay. And then they said she just decided to leave. Yeah. So Catherine, after this, was never seen or heard from again, ever. By... 1987 three missing women and a baby a four-month-old baby were linked to one man john robinson so who was this man born december 27th 1943 john robinson grew up in cicero a suburb of chicago and cicero during the prohibition was kind of an interesting place Mobster Al Capone ran an illegal gambling, bootlegging, and prostitution ring from a hotel called the Hawthorne Arms right in the middle of Cicero, and this led to um, Cicero becoming kind of the epicenter of violence between the Chicago branch of the mob and law enforcement. I mean, uh, the book gave a little bit of a backstory on this, and in the violence and the the gore was pretty bad. There was like death in the streets 
Like there mm-hmm. were shootouts. There was it was like total mayhem in Cicero. Now John Robinson wasn't born during Al Capone's reign, but his father Henry Robinson was, and Cicero residents couldn't escape the vivid imprints of violence of the past, and this included John and his generation. The stories of Al Capone seem to make an impression on John specifically, even from a young age. Yeah. And John Robinson was born into an ordinary working class Catholic family. He was the middle son of five kids with two older brothers, Henry Jr. and Donald, followed by two younger sisters, Joanne and Mary Ellen. John's father, Henry, was a machinist. While John remembered his father fondly, Henry seemed to often check out from the endless grind of being a provider by binge drinking. His mother, Alberta, on the other hand, kept the family in line. She was kind of, I guess, the glue that kept them together. And Mm -hmm. John described her as the disciplinarian. She was strict, demanding. Um, She expected the children to be neat and tidy, I think beyond the capacity of of children, because, you know, children are messy creatures. (laughs) They're sticky Uh, and they (laughs) leave trash wherever they go. They're like little raccoons. Like Um, the pig pen, pig pen cartoon is the most accurate (laughs) depiction of a child. Yes. Well, that was his name on Charlie Brown, right? Or wait, is that not his name? Okay. Pig pen was his name. Yeah. Um, And she also had high expectations of ambition for her children. She really pushed them to be ambitious in life, um, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I think depending on the child, it could go really good or really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. And although John wasn't close with his mother, he seemed to respond best to Alberta's style of parenting at least when he was a boy. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a, very often when we're talking about serial predators, they it always comes back to them having an overbearing mother. Mm-hmm. But I would like to say that I think that that says more about the criminal in question than the parent in question. Absolutely. I mean what they might consider overbearing and over the top and all this other bullshit might have just been a normal, strict family in the, what was this? The fifth, 50s? When was he born? Well, he was born in 43. So yeah, 40s to 50s. Yeah. I mean, I think for the time, his his entire childhood was pretty typical, except for the outside influence of living in Cicero itself. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, I... I mean, maybe Alberta was um, a hard ass. Yeah, but but you have to think she might have been. Listen, it's the 1940s, 1950s. You have five children. Your husband likes yeah. to check out with binge drinking often. Who's not going to be angry? And who's not going to like? I'm I'm sure Al- Alberta wasn't in regular therapy trying to be her best self. She was probably just trying to survive. And maybe she was overcompensating for the lack of another parent. Yeah. I, I mean, could, oh. I could totally see where she's coming from. I, I'm not trying to be a, 
mother defender no not at all but I just feel like it's always the same story but when but a lot of the times when they say oh you know one parent did this or that Mm -hmm. sometimes some of the parents are truly terrible oftentimes Mm -hmm. oh yeah serial predators have truly truly terrible terrible childhoods and you know they learned this violence kind of from birth but Mm -hmm. in the case of this son of a bitch that we're talking about today this is his that's just total bullshit excuse I feel like I feel like his parents were pretty typical of the time right John Robinson is just a piece of shit I think so because you know you have to think his perception from his point of view his dad was detached and when he was there he was the fun loving dad that didn't have any rules or hold him accountable and Alberta was the one who was stuck having to hold her kids accountable and be the parent so I think from from the turd sack that John Robinson is he didn't like his mom because she held him accountable mm-hmm. totally and you will come to find that John Robinson if anything does not take accountability oh hell no fucking piece of shit <laughs> by 13 John joined Boy Scout Troop 259 And he'd also been accepted into Chicago's renowned Quigley Preparatory Seminary School for Boys. After making Eagle Scout, John went with 120 other Boy Scouts to London to sing in front of the newly crowned Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And not only was John one of the first Americans to sing in front of the Queen, he specifically led the entire troop on the stage. And that night, not only did he sing in front of the Queen of England, he also met Judy Garland and he kissed her on the cheek and said, quote, we Americans got to stick together, end quote. I think that this event had a big impact on John Robinson. He was one of those shitbags who totally thinks he's more important than he really is. And this is another one of those things that I think that we all notice a lot Mm -hmm. in people like him like a higher sense of self or sense of grandeur or some bullshit I don't know but um this whole situation with the queen of England like the literal queen of England and Uh Judy Garland um I think it just reinforced how special John thought that he was yeah uh but reality kicked in real quick after this it sure did um, I, yeah, I think what made John Robinson the maddest of all is that he was mediocre <laughs> it, at, at the very best. Uh, he's not even mediocre. Uh, <laughs> and one thing that I'm not sure, if, I can't remember if we touch on later, but the description that Douglas gives of this guy <laughs> is hysterical. He just kind of rips him a new one whenever he can, talking Mm -hmm. about basically how, like, less than mediocre he is. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of my favorite aspects of the book. It really is. He does every every chance he finds space for a little dig. Just a little dig. Yeah. He gets it in there. I mean. You can really tell how much he hates this guy. If I had a nickel for every time Douglas described Robinson as round. (laughs) Just anything, anything that he can say, it's just uh. shorter than average. He called him round, pudgy, soft. (laughs) He called him like soft a whole bunch of times. Soft. Mm -hmm. He's a soft, he was a soft guy. 
Uh, but that physically also, soft. Yeah, physically soft. But that mm-hmm. also is kind of why he was such a successful mm-hmm. con man, fraudster, mm-hmm. was because he was definitely a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the aspects that makes John Robinson super, super fucking scary is he looked jolly and he looked soft. He looked harmless. Mm-hmm. And um, too often we assume if someone is good looking or, you know, harmless looking that they are harmless. Mm hmm. And this definitely was not the case. And uh, it's that's and I I have been um, guilty of that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's called I think it's called the halo effect. And that's why um, people have believed that if it happens a lot with celebrities, the people it it, it actually is called the halo effect. And it's when um, someone is attractive people automatically assume that they're good yeah and i'm not saying john robinson was attractive because in my opinion he wasn't he just looked harmless no he wasn't attractive but he didn't look dangerous he did look like soft and Mm -hmm. easy going he was i mean he was just sort of like average Mm -hmm. i think just average size average height average everything but it wasn't like somebody you would see that had this hulking presence that might make you put mm-hmm. your guard up for sure. Mm-hmm. I, he had um, Douglas described him his face particularly round, and it was almost like the roundness of a baby face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't angular, or he was just I don't know. It made him look harmless again. Um, so after John graduated high school, he did not become a priest. Uh, he met a young woman in college named Nancy Jo Lynch, and they soon found out that a baby was on the way. And they married before the baby was born, and John began working at a hospital, which he immediately began embezzling money from. They found out, they fired him, and looking for a fresh start, him and Nancy moved to Kansas City, Missouri from Chicago. I'm wondering if John... I don't know if John started with embezzlement or he had worked slightly worked his way up, but um, yeah, he it's like pretty much his first job. He started stealing. Well, they did mention in the book that in his teens, he did have some connections with uh, mobsters and he was kind of doing shysty shit back then. So I think that it was just in his realm of normalcy Mm-hmm. To rip people off. Like yeah. that was his baseline normal behavior. Yeah. All right. So I do have to mention this because it's – so Kansas City, Missouri is across the state line, like right across the state line <laughs> from Kansas, the state. Okay? Yeah, it's annoying. It's very annoying. Oh, my God. Like who named Kansas City? Like with the chicken or the egg? It's like if Some Kansas asshole. City, Missouri was first – who named the next state over like 30 minute drive Kansas because it was that my brain had a literal glitch trying to figure this shit out it's just kind of like the most obnoxious shit ever but if you live in Kansas City Missouri we love you and if you live in Kansas State we also love you but (laughs) we are not from there and we're idiots and it's confusing for us (laughs) (laughs) okay well it didn't because it didn't just confuse me 
It also confused law enforcement because John would ping pong back and forth across state lines. So he would commit mm-hmm. crimes in Kansas and then he would go over to Missouri to Kansas City and commit crimes. And, you know, back in the day, jurisdictions did not communicate or share information. So this was like a win-win for John. I wouldn't be surprised if he specifically picked this area of the country so he could easily go back and forth. Yeah, I think that John absolutely knew what he was doing by switching jurisdictions like that. Um, Not to give him any credit whatsoever, but I do think that he did it on purpose. So John and Nancy were in Kansas City uh, for a fresh start, but that fresh start never actually happened because John couldn't help himself. A piece of shit is going to do piece of shit things. Mm -hmm. So he got a job at a children's hospital and later at an x-ray lab, and both times he used fraudulent certifications to get hired. Because in case you didn't know by now, all of Robinson's credentials were total bullshit. Anytime he needed another certification to hang on his wall, he would just make it himself. And he didn't just make certifications. He made uh, what he named himself man of the year one time and had like a whole ass luncheon for himself. He gave himself a fucking award that was written up in the paper. Could you imagine? <laughs> How embarrassing. The fucking audacity of this fucking grub of a man. He does look like a grub. That's what he, he looks like, a grub. He looks like a grub and Porky Pig had a baby. Yes. Um, also, because but- doesn't Porky Pig wear a blue jacket? Like a little blazer? I know he doesn't wear pants. I know this is not important to the show, but the blazer aspect of Porky Pig's outfit, because I just feel like John would wear wear a business business light attire. Um, he and a little bow tie, right? Um, yes. I feel like I'm. I feel like I am uh, rubbing Porky Pig's good name in the mud right now, and I am not trying to defame him. By the way, okay. It's. I think it was. I think the name for it is Bolero. Was it a Bolero? His jacket? I think. I don't. Okay. I need to Google Porky Pig now because what if this is a, like the Mandela effect? <laughs> I think he's wearing a blue jacket and a red bow tie. Okay. And also, I'm... why would I know this? <laughs> okay. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. He is. It's a blue jacket and a red bow tie. <gasps> I got it right. Well. You are correct. That's why I can't remember my anniversary because I have to make room for this Porky Pig knowledge. So. Seriously, don't ask me Sorry, how husband. old my kids are. I couldn't tell you. I could tell you a lot of other weird shit. If you ask me, oh, how old are your kids? I don't fucking know. It, like, I have a panic attack if people ask me any <laughs> personal questions. I have a nervous breakdown. I My date of birth, like when I'm buying alcohol, yeah. someone asked me a date of birth. Don't remember it. They think I'm probably trying to, to like, obviously don't look like I'm under 21, but who knows? 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I feel so dumb when someone asks me questions I should know and I don't know and then we I can't just be get... the only people that panic react well then I just I do panic react and then I just make up something and then it's even worse for me like <laughs> for example at Dutch Brothers they always ask you what are you doing today why would they do that they it's their thing I think it's in their company policy I always panic and say <laughs> nothing <laughs> They are not going to be your alibi if you need it now, Cassie. <laughs> I always panic and say nothing. Uh, they, they, I'm probably on a list or something there. I don't know. They have your picture up <laughs> behind the wall. If a crime happens within 10 miles, this bitch did it. 
Okay, sorry for the porky pig tangent, but look them up. You'll agree with me, people. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so uh, he was making fake certs for himself, but but it kind of worked because at the time, x-ray techs didn't need an actual license, and apparently the hospital staff and doctors at both facilities were extremely trusting of this and seeing um, this seemingly harmless guy or porky pig as he was or grub or grub (laughs) eventually uh, you know they just trusted him too much but eventually john gave himself away because he didn't know what he was doing and he Mm -hmm. was also very um inappropriate with female co-workers and patients and awkward with babies i was just gonna say when he worked (laughs) at the children's hospital he did not know how to hold a baby which he had children yeah, I don't I, – I, okay, whatever, man. So at the x-ray place, um, his crimes finally caught up with him at this point. He was caught – because he was embezzling from both places. He had pretty much any job where he didn't work for himself and he worked for another company. He worked at multiple doctor's office and other companies. He eventually started embezzling from those companies. Mm-hmm. So they caught him. They arrested him. And the times before where he had been caught embezzling, he had talked his way out of either them calling the police or if they did call the police, he would just offer restitution and then they would basically let him go, give him a slap on the wrist or whatever. Yeah, we are definitely kind of shortening this uh, embezzlement white collar crime Mm -hmm. spree. It went on for a while, but his Mm -hmm. later crimes are so numerous, we didn't want to spend a ton Mm -hmm. of time on it. But he Mm -hmm. was embezzling and stealing and ripping off employers for a while before Mm -hmm. it finally caught up with him. Yes. Uh, The punishment, yeah, like since back to Chicago and then Chicago told, he was in Illinois for a little bit and he did it in Illinois. Like he was, it was bad. Um, But again, for, you know, the 12th time where he was caught embezzling, he he only got probation. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever so frustrated with this because had they actually taken him seriously as a criminal so many people would be alive and nancy stuck by him for way too long Stuck by him way too long while and the white collar crime aside the fraud the embezzlement john was also habitually he was a serial cheater like he was cheating on his wife Mm-hmm. And not only was he cheating on his wife, but he was getting into BDSM, which is bondage, discipline, or domination, sadism, or submission, and masochism. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, uh, it's basically sexual activity that involves, for example, tying a partner up games in which one partner controls another giving and receiving pain for pleasure is a very simple definition from cambridge dictionary so he was getting into this whole underworld of bdsm and i'm just going to refer to it as bdsm from moving forward Mm -hmm. so that now that you know what it is so he was not only was he cheating on his wife but he was um visiting nightclubs specifically bdsm clubs um along with this timeline 
around this time. So it seemed that two sides of John Robinson were starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. And it was the family man versus the callous and sadistic career criminal. And we say sadistic because in the BDSM world, John was a dominant. So he was not a submissive. He was a what someone would consider a dominant partner. And he was definitely sadistic. So by this time, it's 1987. John is now fully emerged in the BDSM community or his version of it. And we'll get that, get to his version of it towards the end of, of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, I, I kind of, and it, we don't know this, but John wasn't working a traditional job, but he had, he was funding a very expensive lifestyle. And we kind of cut all this out, like Tiffany said, because there's so much to this story, but they were living way beyond their means. So John was kind of scrambling um, with scheme after scheme after scheme to kind of fund them month by month or every few months, he would kind of come up with a new scheme, whether it was like an investment scheme or a real estate scheme. But I think he was dabbling in sex trafficking um, and or pimping and and maybe even some kind of drug dealing to supplement his income. I know based on a witness account, he would kind of target women who maybe had a, a, a substance abuse or um, kind of relied on a drug habit or alcohol um, abuse. And he would kind of, it, he would ensnare them and then Um, And we don't know who they are because the book didn't name them. And I don't even know if his trial brought this up. But John Douglas kind of hinted, based on a witness, that John would ensnare these girls. And then he would find prominent members of the community who were into BDSM. Um, And this isn't, we're going to talk about this, but this isn't like BDSM. This is like the, the dark dark version of BDSM where it's, you know, crossing the line from BDSM to abuse. Yeah, I don't think that anybody who actually participates in BDSM would consider John Robinson Mm -hmm. an actual true uh, subscriber to that form Mm -hmm. of sex. Yeah, and and we're definitely going to cover that at one point in this episode because we want to make that very clear. But I think he would rent these girls out and that's another source of income that he he -hmm. found. He was definitely supplementing his income with some sort of extracurricular illegal activities because during Mm -hmm. this time, they were living in a straight-up mansion in the most expensive neighborhood that they could find. Yes. Their lifestyle definitely shifts later on, but in these early days, they are extremely well off Mm -hmm. and living a life of luxury. Mm -hmm. Totally. And this is where we kind of get a little bit of satisfaction because all of John's embezzlement crimes up to this point, he'd really only got a slap on the wrist, but it caught up with him and charges finally stuck like heavy charges. Mm -hmm. Like he did many a time, John created a shell company, Equi Plus, which he used or said he was going to provide services to healthcare companies. So a company called Back Care Systems hired John to promote, market, and provide um, seminars 
for their company. And John mailed them invoices, emailed them invoices, sent them invoices. And they were, the company looked at this invoice and it was, it was pretty steep amount, uh, but they paid it. And it turns out that John never performed those services, which is fraud. So they contacted authorities, an investigation ensued. And then comes our friend Stephen Hames, who was the director of the parole and probation department in Missouri. And he was well aware of John because John had been on probation for so long that he knew exactly who he was. He actually had been on Stephen Hames' radar for a while. Yeah, because every time he got a slap on the wrist, he was put on probation. And Stephen exactly. Hames was the uh, authority in charge of that. Yeah. So he um, went to the trial and he recommended that um, when John Robinson was convicted, because he was convicted of fraud, that he was, when he was sentenced, they also sentenced him based on um, him being a habitual criminal or um, I can't remember what it was called, but um, he went to the judge and was like, hey, this guy is 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 bad. A repeat news. offender. A repeat offender. Let's let's do something about this. The judge agreed and he got almost seven years in prison. And to date, this was the longest time that he'd ever spent in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think, wow, okay, finally we're getting somewhere. Um, he's paying his debt to society. But John Robinson wasn't going to rehabilitate himself in prison. He was going to take the opportunity to fine-tune his skills, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, typically for white-collar crime, in a white-collar crime situation, rehabilitation would be totally doable. Mm-hmm. But as we'll soon find out, John Robinson was so much more than a fraudster or a scammer or an embezzler. He was much, much more dangerous than that. Exactly. Um, And in prison, John Robinson learned to walk the walk and talk the talk. He said all the right things to the psychologist, to the guards, to the warden. He had like exemplary reviews of being a model prisoner, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. We know it was a fucking act. And he was assigned a job working with computers. Now, this is, you know, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, So he computers were budding and like not a lot of not a lot of homes had computers it was mostly like uh wealthy people and businesses Mm -hmm. um so so it was like a new thing he got into computers in prison and he started working on computer programming and he also got into this new thing called the internet as john douglas liked to say the net (laughs) yes he did call it the net Honestly, the only thing I love more than John Douglas is his in-depth explanation of the internet. Oh I my love God, you so you... much, John Douglas. <laughs> but, uh, to, you know, to cut him a little bit of slack, the book is older and John Douglas is from a different generation. So I kind of appreciate how thorough he was. Mm-hmm. But if anybody needs like a seven-page definition on a chat room, I've got the book for you. Oh my, seriously. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't... If you took it the wrong way, it could come off as John Douglas mansplaining the internet to people in 2022, (laughs) which could be a little bit annoying. But I think, you know, listen, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? He had good intentions and he was writing this in the early 2000s. So at that time, 
we didn't have the knowledge that we have now. The average person didn't have the knowledge. Um, So while in prison, John Robinson complained of health issues and ailments the entire time, which I think he did have a couple mini strokes, but um, kind of deserved them. Um, But Dr. Bonner was a prison's physician, and he was very familiar with John. um, And in fact, he saw right through his bullshit. He was one of the only people who like knew, clocked him immediately. This guy's a con man. He's bad news. Mm hmm. And Dr. Bonner's wife, Beverly Bonner, also worked at the prison as the librarian. But fucking wild and crazy twist, she totally fell for John Robinson, hook, line, and sinker. Somehow, somehow, Robinson managed to seduce and manipulate 49-year-old Beverly Bonner to the point that she divorced her husband, Dr. Bonner, and once Robinson was released from prison, she continued a relationship with him. This is so wild and crazy to me. Imagine leaving your doctor husband for this grub. <laughs> Honestly. The only thing that I can say is maybe it really shows Robinson's power of persuasion. I just, I don't see it. I do not understand I think he was a grifter, master, manipulator. And I think Beverly um, totally fell for it. I don't think it was any um, fault on her. But I think he got his hooks in her. And she didn't know what hit her. Yeah. So by 1993, John Robinson was out of prison. And he did not use his new computer skills to become a productive member of society. Sadly, he used them to skillfully lure more victims to him. I mean, he goes back to his wife, Nancy, when he gets out, who, again, was sticking by his side, despite her fall from grace and the public embarrassment of John's family. So when he was sentenced to seven years in prison, he had immersed himself in the community and made himself look, uh, you know, he was like a Cub Scout leader. He was a member of, like a prominent member of the church. He named himself Man of the Year. He was a prominent <laughs> businessman, like lived in a mansion. Exactly. So, but at, by this time, they had done, the local newspaper had done like a scathing report on what a con man he was because he had conned. I would say thousands of people out of like $5,000, $10,000, $1,000. Including and his own neighbors, like people that were thought yes. that they were his friend. Yes. Um, so his family definitely had a fall from grace. And Nancy, she was sticking by her man. Yeah, I have to say Nancy is loyal to a fault. John Douglas did reiterate in his book that she seemed beaten down by her marriage to John Robinson Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I mean, enough has to be enough. I can't believe how long she stayed by his side. The humiliation from this whole chapter of their life alone would um, break me, I think. I just, I can't imagine putting up with your husband being a con man for a decade and then waiting another seven years for him to come out of prison and losing no everything. They lost everything. Yeah, yeah, they literally did. And I think bef- when he, even before he went to prison, they did an expose on him just fucking ripping him a new one about how he named himself Man of the Year. Which, by the way, I why haven't we done that yet? Podcast of the Year, <laughs> right here. Hello. Se- 
seriously. I mean, after that, if I was Nancy, I would have been like, whoa, that's embarrassing. I'm out. But like you said, Douglas did um, insinuate that, I mean, she ultimately is also a victim because he kept her around for a specific purpose. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I, I can't, I, I don't, I can't understand it. All right. So here's John. He's out of prison. And um, just like that, ever the enterprising sociopath that he is, he's seeing his wife, also Beverly Bonner. Now, him and Beverly Bonner, they had a sexual relationship. I don't believe they're engaged in uh, BDSM. And she also did work for him. Uh, But John always found a way. So he used his new internet and web knowledge to venture into BDSM chat rooms. And in these chat rooms, he would chat it up with multiple, like multiple women at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he also went by multiple names. He, one, his most used name was Slave Master. Uh, he also went by the name JR, JRT. He also went by Jim Turner and sometimes James Turner. Um, also, I feel like we need to mention his fucking farmer <laughs> photo. <laughs> okay, yeah, I haven't mentioned this yet, but now is a perfect time to mention it because he would always send the same stupid fucking picture of himself dressed up as a farmer, and he, the look on his face is so smug, I just want to punch it. I just can't believe that picture helped him out at all, but I guess it did. Uh, honestly, I just, I just want to like turn that picture into like a voodoo doll and just stab it with a needle. He has such a punchable face. He really does have a punchable face. I have never met anybody more that has a anybody that has a more punchable face. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so back to Beverly. She knew he was a seasoned con man. She also knew his real name was John Robinson. I think that he manipulated her so much. That even though she knew who he was, I don't, I think she was honest. I think she fell in love with him and she believed his bullshit and she was just blinded by love. She told her mother that she was seeing and working for a man named Jim Redmond, purposely mm-hmm. concealing his true identity. Yeah. Um. Once Beverly began working at one of his shell companies, I think this was the... Hydro Grow Company, which was like a fake company to like grow vegetables in like a hydro tower. I don't know. Inside your house. Some bullshit. I think he ripped it off from somebody else. He made pamphlets and I think he called himself like best farmer ever. I don't know. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, like we said before, Dr. Bonner and Beverly Bonner got a divorce and he was giving her a thousand dollars a month in alimony so this whole time that she is dating john robinson and working for him she's still cashing these thousand dollar a month alimony checks then pretty soon john robinson was like okay beverly uh my love i need you to sign the bottom of these blank sheets of paper because surprise you're gonna start traveling for work um i believe he told her she was gonna go around the world and sell perfume um And he said, these blank sheets of paper with your signatures at the bottom are going to save time when you need to send letters to your family. Um, And eventually, the only trace of Beverly Bonner 
were the mysterious letters postmarked from all over Europe. Beverly Bonner's mom received a letter from her daughter stating that she was in Europe making her way to China. She was having the time of her life. And she even accurately described um, like a popular street in Amsterdam in one of her letters, which it turns out John Robinson took his family to Amsterdam on a vacation. And even though Beverly was sending her mother letters from all over Europe, Beverly's alimony checks were still being cashed and they were being mailed to a P.O. box in Olaf, Kansas. So poor Beverly. Um, also, so shitty for Dr. Bonner, who was essentially sending this monster $1,000 a month for years. Yeah, yeah. And I have to, I, I guess maybe they had a pretty contentious divorce, which I could have only imagine. Um but besides, it is pretty sad for Beverly because besides her mom, I don't think anybody really delve into the fact that nobody saw her anymore. This is just pure speculation, obviously, but maybe she lost friends when she broke up with her husband to marry this fucking creep because I'm sure oh. her friends that weren't charmed by him thought that he was a bad guy because he was. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now we're in 1994. Um like we said, this is like goes on for years. It's fucking crazy. So in 1994, 45 year old widow Sheila Faith was looking for a life partner and someone to help her share the financial responsibility of taking care of her 15 year old daughter, Debbie Faith, who was diagnosed with spina bifida. And unfortunately, I think we all know who is going to swoop in on these poor, sweet, unsuspecting victims. Yes, exactly. Because eventually Sheila meets a Midwest farmer online. They begin to have phone conversations. Sheila is falling deeply in love. He is her dream come true. He tells Sheila, if you come out to the Midwest, I'll care for you. I'll get Debbie enrolled in an elite school for disabled students. Um, and at the time, Debbie and Sheila kind of moved around a little bit, but at this time they were living in Colorado because they had friends there. And the friends there said one day Sheila and Debbie were at their apartment and the next day they were gone. Like literally their stuff was moved in the middle of the night and it caused total shock to the neighbors and friends. They had no idea where they had gone or that they were leaving so suddenly. But before they knew eventually she was leaving because before she left Sheila asked friends to keep track of the social security check and food stamps they were getting each month which totaled a little over a thousand dollars a month friends never saw Sheila or Debbie again the disability checks were also forwarded to a P.O. box in Olaf Kansas the same P.O. box that Beverly Bonner's alimony checks were mailed to which I guess there's nobody checking, but you just have all of these different people's forms of income with different names from different places mm -hmm. coming into the same P.O. box. I guess maybe it's our privacy and nobody is allowed to <laughs> pay attention to that, but it just seems so obvious and not even trying to hide it. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, like how do you even, I mean, it, it, you can't go through people's mail, but it's like these agencies didn't But they would notice. be labeled. They would be labeled Social Security Office, and it would have somebody's name on it. Right. I Yes, I, get, I see what you're saying. Like someone who um, delivered the mail to that P.O. box noticed that there was multiple women's 
um, male going in. Yeah, it was only different the streams of income for multiple mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. coming into the same. I guess they could hypothetically all be roommates, like Golden Girls. I get well. That's a good point too. Yeah. Um, eventually, Sheila's brother started to get letters from Sheila, or supposedly Sheila, saying that, hey, we're doing great, Debbie is fine, and it's signed, love Sheila. Um, and sadly, after Sheila and Debbie left Colorado, um, they were never seen again, and suspiciously, 152 checks were cashed after that, totaling $80,000. Now... Some women escaped John Robinson's web. Luckily, two women in particular, one was Alicia Cox and the other was Barbara Sandra, I want to say, Sandry. Um, Alicia Cox was in her late 20s when she met John after, after he answered an ad in the wild side section of the newspaper. Alicia placed an ad as a straight black female looking for a mature to take care of her. They began a sexual relationship. I think it had light BDSM. Um, After some details were worked out, he told her he was married, but he was getting a divorce, and he would pay her $2,000 a month to be his mistress as long as she provided sex on demand. Uh, Like I said, a light BDSM, but they had a relatively conventional sex aside from like nipple clamps and an occasional dog collar that tied uh, Alicia's hands behind her back. Um, And even at one point, um, John Robinson gave Alicia a gold ring and he said he wanted to marry her. It seems as though Alicia almost didn't make it out alive, though. So she kept pressuring John to use his the supposed connections, connections John claimed that he had Mm -hmm. to get her a job in entertainment. Uh, Of course, this job would never materialize because Mm -hmm. John Robinson is a world-class liar. What he did instead was tell her that he got her a job traveling internationally. Another lie he uses over and over again, I guess. Mm -hmm. So John asked her to sign a few blank sheets of paper and give him her social security number. He said he wanted to stop at his farm on the way to the airport, and he showed up with a towing trailer. Um, So they spent the night in this hotel together, Mm -hmm. and luckily for Alicia, she woke up early the next morning, um, which really seemed to piss off John, and he basically flipped out and left. So the theory here is that Somehow waking up early had ruined whatever nefarious plan John had. Mm -hmm. The thinking is that he planned on waking up early and doing something terrible to Alicia. But because she woke up first, it kind of threw him off of his game and he just fucking freaked out and left because, I mean, I don't know. I guess it was just too much for him to handle. But Alicia's out of character early wake up call probably saved her life. Yeah, absolutely. We can see the pattern. I mean, the signing, the paper, the social security number Mm -hmm. seems like it was a really close call. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And Barbara Sandry was um, the other woman. But I don't know. Um, Tiffany has a a great theory on Barbara Sandry. Um, They had known each other since the 60s and they had kept in touch off and on. She lived in Canada and then moved to Great Britain. Um, Barbara had um, a lucrative business as a translator. And 
somehow, like she was a smart, successful, capable woman. And somehow John had convinced her to move to Kansas to be with him, even though he was married. And he, he lied to Barbara about being married or getting divorced. And it turns out that Barbara, out of all of the women, out of all of the mistresses, Barbara was the one that got to Nancy the most for years they fought about Barbara for years. Nancy even wrote Barbara a letter at one point and was like, Hey, he's married. I'm his wife. We have children. And all the time John is telling Barbara, no, 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 we're getting divorced, blah, 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 this and that. They did have um, conventional sex. They did not get into BDSM together. Um, I think she, I think she really loved John and um, I think she thought eventually they would be together. So Barbara ended up moving back to Canada with the idea that John was coming right behind her, that he was going to, you know, wrap up his marriage or um, do whatever. And then he was going to eventually join her in Canada. And one of the things that Barbara did do for John is she, when he asked, she mailed letters she said she did not open to random people all over the country from Canada and from Europe when she lived in Europe she did it too that's right and and they had they did have a joint bank account as well and she and he opened up businesses in her name too yeah and John also told her that his his wife Nancy was actually just some woman who was obsessed with him (laughs) that's right I don't, I mean, I don't know this whole thing with Barbara. So I watched a Vanity Fair confidential on this guy. If you think maybe this guy rings a bell, maybe you saw that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, although that episode is like literally PG-13 versus the like NC-17 rating that the book mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. It le- had to leave out a lot to be appropriate for television, obviously. Yeah. But it did provide me with like a visual on many of these people. What blew my mind was that Barbara legitimately thought that John was the assistant director for the CIA. Oh, that's right. That's the one he told he was uh, the, oh my, oh my God. First of all, I'm not, they are, it's never, he is never the assistant director of the CIA. No, like honestly, wouldn't he be living in like, where's Quantico? Virginia, West Virginia? Like, wouldn't he be at Quantico? It's Washington, D.C.? And there is no way that John Robinson seemed that intelligent. No. There is absolutely no way. I'm sorry, but there is absolutely no way. I feel like you would, you would, I mean, don't they have work parties at the CIA? Like, I feel like you would, like, have some physical evidence that your boyfriend was the assistant director of the CIA. Like, you would have a detail or something. I don't know. I don't. She, so anyway, so she thought that, um, and that's part of the reason why she mailed letters for him for years that like were, that was not helpful. Mm-hmm. I think that the reason, my theory that you mentioned is I think that he kept her alive and strung her along be specifically because she lived in another country. Mm-hmm. And I think that she was kind of his escape plan. I a hundred percent think you are onto something with that. Especially cause I don't think that Canada will extradite on death penalty. Yeah, I think um, Barbara was Nancy 2.0. Yeah, he, she, he, she was his plan mm-hmm. B, C, D, I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it's 1997 by now, and this brings us to Isabel Lewicka. She was a young Polish immigrant living in Indiana. She was attending Purdue College, and she was just a young woman. Um, I believe she was 19, and she was looking for something a little bit spicier than your average college day. Um, So she started going online. And Isabella was a creative person. She was into the occult and she started to dabble into BDSM, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, And after chatting online in a BDSM chat room to an older farmer from Kansas, he promised her a job. And that farmer, you guessed it, was none other than John Robinson. And Isabella or excuse me, Isabel decided, Isabel decided to move to Olaf, Kansas and work for him. I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity, right? It's you, you meet someone you think is mature. He's into the same things as you. He's a business owner. Like it sounds like a wonderful opportunity for anybody. Yeah, I could see that. I also think that Isabel liked how opposite they were. It was Mm -hmm. definitely pushing the limit on, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, normal society. She's 19. He's like 52. She's a Mm -hmm. total goth girl that does like Mm -hmm. vampire larping in the woods, literally. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I know. And and she has like hundreds of books on the occult. Mm -hmm. And he is a grub wearing a sports jacket. Like they are they could not look more different. You know, I think that that kind of interested her also. I agree. So she moved. She moved to Kansas to be with this fucking grub of a farmer. But sadly, like the ones, the women before her, as soon as she moved, she started to become more and more distant from her family. She wasn't emailing them as often. Um, But she did enroll in junior college. However, suspiciously, she used a hyphenated name, Lewicka and Robinson, and she wore a ring on her left finger and she even showed her professor in college the wedding ring which was a ruby john and isabel were often seen around town and i think they stuck out because like you said their juxtaposition from one another Mm -hmm. um she was this young goth girl he was this kind of square looking older man um and and john knew that they stuck out and sometimes he would act like they were together and sometimes he would tell people that she was his niece i believe and then uh, eventually john and isabel weren't seen around town anymore and pretty soon her parents received an email that said i'm happy i'm wed i want to be left alone and that's the last that they heard from her and saw her anybody really In 2000, John meets a fellow BDSM community member, Suzette Troughton. And I think Suzette Troughton was probably the most, uh, I I would say of all the women, she was probably the most immersed in the BDSM community. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, They met in a chat room and it was hot and heavy, 
right from the get-go. Again, the same song and dance. He tells her he's a prominent businessman in Kansas. He has a job for her. Um, This is where it takes a weird fucking turn. He says, because Suzette was in, in home health, so he told her, I have a job of you taking care of, quote, Papa John. Who the fuck's Papa John? It was supposed to be his dad. Ugh. You know he was sitting there eating pizza, and he could not think of a name, and he looked down at the box. You know he did. I fucking hate him so much. Such a scumbag. Suzette was described as gregarious, fun-loving. She was one of those people who is, like, quick to laugh. But she did have her emotional struggles. She was down on her luck financially, and... um, Suzette decided to move to Kansas with her two dogs and take the job and also start a sexual relationship with John. And this, just like I said, other women before, Suzette would eventually vanish and her family and friends would start getting emails that didn't quite sound like Suzette. But here's the thing. What set Suzette apart from all of the other women that had come before her is she gave her mother she was extremely close to she, i believe she's 27 and she had never mm-hmm. lived on her own she always lived with her mother she gave her mom john robinson's real phone number and address before she left michigan yeah and before john robinson had always been sure to tell the women that he victimized to not share any of his information mm-hmm. or or he just wouldn't give them any real uh personal information on himself making Mm -hmm. it almost impossible for the friends and family of the missing women to track him down or even to identify him. Mm -hmm. So this was an extremely important piece of the putting this whole puzzle together. Yes. Now, not only was Suzette close with her friend, but she was super active in in the BDS community online in chat rooms. And she had uh, a friend, her name was Lore, uh, or I, I don't know if it's pronounced Laura or Lore, but she lived in Nova Scotia and um, she was also getting emails and it just didn't sound like Suzette. Mm-hmm. So Suzette's mother, Carol, God bless this woman, she began to call John Robinson. She didn't leave this fucking man alone and good for her. Um, she would call she would call him and ask about Suzette he would you know first he blew her off and then he got mad and then he just kind of stopped answering um and then like I said Laura in Nova Scotia or Laura also asked about Suzette through emails and John basically badmouthed Suzette saying she ran off with some man she stole ten thousand dollars from him and she started to resort to sex work to pay for her bills And I believe in the emails that uh, were supposed to be Suzette, she was saying she was on a cruise to Mexico with a man and that, you know, she was having the time of her life, but it, it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. And here's where her two little dogs come into play. This was kind of the thing that broke the case wide open or basically was the catalyst to, to the police actually giving a fucking shit. Carol, Suzette's mom, told police that Suzette would never leave her two beloved dogs behind. Never, 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 never. So the thing about Suzette is she had had a lot of emotional ups and downs in her life. She struggled with body image. And at one point she um, had tried to unalive herself. It was a failed attempt, but 
I believe her dogs were really provided a lot of emotional support. She had a really deep connection with her dogs and her mom knew that. So she told police she would never leave her dogs ever, ever, Mm -hmm. ever, ever. So the police followed the trail and they discovered that Suzette's dogs were picked up by animal control and had been adopted out separately to two different families. And according to animal control records, the two purebred Peganese were picked up running around Santa Barbara Estates, which is the trailer park where John and Nancy lived. So during that seven years when John went to prison, Nancy moved into and began managing a trailer park. And, you know, she did a great job. She was taking care of herself. And then when Robinson Mm -hmm. got out of prison, he joined her at that trailer park. Yes. Where once again, they kind of made themselves like a name in that community. Oh my gosh, yes. They really climbed to the top of that hierarchy in the trailer park, which is... Anyways, like I said, so finally local police were taking a missing woman's seriously... And that's when they contacted a blast from the past, Stephen Hames, the probation and parole supervisor from Missouri. And Stephen Hames basically was like, I've been waiting for your call. I have a file a mile high on this fucking guy. I've been watching for 15 years and I know he's hurt people and I just can't prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the police, now this is where it starts heating up. This is the beginning of the end because the police... They begin to trail John. They are trailing him from like 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. every single day. Like every single day. They are planning uh, plainclothes officers around him. They are t- they are t- collecting his trash on trash day. And repl- they went so far. Like a whole ass task force. Mm-hmm. There was a police officer pretending to tan on the yes. task force outside of his uh, trailer. Yes. So they created this whole task force. They would, on trash day, they would go in the middle of the night, pick up his trash and replace it with like fake trash bags. Mm -hmm. So he didn't suspect anything. And um, they would sort through his trash to find any, um, anything, anything that would lead to just any little crumb that would lead to kind of a warrant because they were looking for Suzette. And Stephen Hames told them, hey, Suzette is just, she's, uh, she's not the first. Like, I have a list of, like, five other women that have disappeared. So they started going to his known extended stay hotels where they knew he would um, set women up. And they told the clerks, hey, let us know when anyone sets up extended stay. They um, they tapped those hotel rooms when the clerks called them. was like, hey, he booked this room two days from now. So they'd go in that room. They'd bug it. They'd wire it. They'd listen in the room next. And this is what we were talking about when we said the police investigation was tricky in this situation because there's such a fine line between proper BDSM practice and abuse mm-hmm. and the police were not schooled in the BDSM lifestyle so they had no idea yeah they were definitely walking a tightrope between protecting people or infringing on people's personal rights exactly they never burst into the room because they were like hey this is probably consensual which in any normal case would have been mm-hmm so they were like tailing this guy. They followed him. He, at some point, he had bought a 16-acre farm in Lachaga, I want to say. I don't know how to pronounce it. So they tailed him down there. 
they followed him to his storage unit that he had like they were they're trying to get anything like I said yeah just to paint a picture of all of the different area that John Robinson kind of had where he had his activity happening I mean he had his trailer Mm -hmm. that he lived in he had another trailer on a property he had Mm -hmm. these it was uh, two extended stay hotels right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then he also had multiple storage units that he was visiting Mm -hmm. so yeah it's every I mean it's so many different places yeah and then I think he had like an office or something rented Mm -hmm. in Missouri too I think so So too yeah he had like places in Kansas he had places in Missouri he was like he had this whole fucking web it it's fucking scary so the police like I said were trying to get information um but they couldn't outright ask him or tip him off because one they were afraid that he had the means to basically be in the wind or if he got any kind of a whiff that he was going to um, be that he was being investigated or trailed that he would start destroying evidence mm-hmm. which he we would have done both oh I've, absolutely he would have done both yeah all right so this is when Vicki Newfield enters the chat, pardon the pun. Vicki uh, Newfield was an out-of-work psychiatrist who lived in Texas, and she was exploring the BDSM lifestyle when she came across John Robinson. Again, like the women before him, John Robinson promised to use his connections as a prominent businessman in Kansas to get Vicki a job in the health community as a psychiatrist. So Vicki came to Olathe, Kansas, where she thought the self-proclaimed wealthy businessman was looking for the same thing as her, a partner, a BDSM partner. And it wasn't until she got there that she discovered that was not the case. John did not give her the money he promised her. He set her up an extended stay hotel instead of what he said he had. A, he said he had a five-bedroom mansion. He did not set her up there. I don't know why. That was first red flag for me. So... He comes over to this extended stay hotel. They discuss details of this contract that um, he had. He had um, made a contract for some years now, and he called it the slave contract. And it was basically this uh, BDSM contract um, that he would have women sign. And it was it was uh, rules that he expected them to adhere to. And by signing that they were agreeing to adhere to those rules, which is not uncommon in the BDSM world. Mm -hmm. John just took it to a whole nother level. Exactly. She signed the contract. They talked it over a bit. Some of the things she was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. She also put in the contract like he couldn't just like abandon her and leave her um, high and dry. So she signed the contract and he immediately began behaving beyond the parameters of the contract. For example, he straight up slapped her across the face. She never agreed to that. That wasn't part of the contract. And it shocked the shit out of her. And she was starting to have some serious doubts. But she wanted this to work out. And it seems like John had... um, John Douglas, who wrote the book, said that John Robinson was a profiler like himself in a way... He profiled women and he was so good at selecting the perfect victim. It was usually a woman who was down on her luck financially, 
she probably had maybe some emotional instability, whether that be um, they were going through a rough time, a divorce, a middle, um, just just some kind of turmoil going on, um, loss of a job, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. He had a real knack for, for finding women and um, exploiting their weaknesses. He specifically looked for women who were looking for a job or out of work or down on their luck financially because he really used that, hey, I own my own business, come work for me. So they talked, she wanted this to work out beside, you know, despite the doubts that she was having, it was brand new. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it would change. She went back to Texas to pack up her things. um, And then he would send for a moving company to bring her back to Kansas. Well, they had their last conversation at the hotel. And as he left, John took her bag of sex toys, which she brought with her, which was worth over $700. Mm -hmm. And not only... $700 is a lot of money, but a lot of those toys were gifts. So they held sentimental value um, Mm -hmm. to Vicky. And um, when she was back in Texas, she knew it wasn't going to work out. Like a week or something had passed and she hadn't heard from John and he didn't send a moving company. So she called him and she was like, look, I fucking hate you. You're a piece of shit. Give me my sex toys back. And he said no. And then she said, "If, if you don't send me my sex toys I'm going to call the cops and he vehemently refused to send the sex toys back in fact he doubled down and threatened to blackmail her if she didn't stop calling him uh he would because when they met up he took some nude photos of her in compromising positions and he threatened to send those to future employers and her family so Vicky backed off He's such a piece of shit. Only for the time being. Yeah. Only for the time being. So basically, Vicky was back in Texas, and it's early 2000, and Jenna Milleron, a 30-something divorced accountant, again from Texas, she was unemployed, and she was looking for a dominant. So she was in the BDSM lifestyle. She, She didn't want to experience pain per se, but she was interested in the painless side of being a submissive. And if you're in the BDSM community, I'm sure that you understand what that means. John Robinson answered her ad, but he answered it under the name Jim Turner, one of his alias, many aliases that he used. Yeah, she was basically his perfect target, like a sitting duck. So they had an online relationship for a bit. He convinced her to come to Kansas she got to the same extended stay that he got for all of his women. And when he got there, he gave her some groceries. They discussed her being a bookkeeper and also um, taking care of his, again, five-bedroom mansion. He said he wouldn't pay her, but he would cover all of her expenses. And I just want to say, just as a woman or anybody really, um, that is a bad situation to put yourself in. Yeah. I'm not um, judging or blaming Jenna in any way. I'm just saying, let's take this as a lesson. Having someone pay for all of your expenses instead of paying you puts you in a position to not have your own resources. Mm-hmm. So that first meeting, they did not have sex, but he did leave his bag of floggers, clips, clamps, and whips. 
he came back the next day and this is the first time that they have sex and it was way more violent than Jenna had anticipated. She did not like it. John, in fact, was upset because when he came to the hotel, Jenna hadn't assumed the position, which he preferred the position for him when he walked in to have sex with a partner. That partner had to be naked and kneeling in the corner. And she'd also locked the hotel room door, which, uh, duh. Yeah. He did not want her to do that. So he hit her on the back and on her breasts and he hit her much harder than she expected and wanted. And then they had sex and he immediately left afterwards, which that sounds so traumatizing and scary. The next sexual encounter was even more violent. And this one, John asked Jenna for her social security number. But at this point, she was like, oh, fuck, this is bad. So she gave him a fake number. Smart. Yes, exactly. And again, he punished her for not greeting him naked in the corner. He beat her across the breast again with a flogger. And this time he took pictures of the marks that he left behind. And Jenna was not into this. She was not into the beating and she was not into him taking pictures of her marks She told John, I'm not into this. This is not what I signed up for. She asked about the job he he promised. And at this point, he got pissed. And he said, hey, there's 100 bucks in the cabinet. Go back to fucking Texas. And he left. Feeling like she'd been taken advantage of. um, She was visibly upset and shaken. She went down to the front desk and she asked the clerk for help. Now, remember, he had given her the name Jim Turner. She did not know that he was John Robinson. So imagine that terrifying realization. Exactly. She went down to the clerk and the clerk showed her a copy of the driver's license of the man who had paid for the room. And it was John Robinson to her fucking shock. And by this time, Jenna was like hysterical. And she called 911, but she was so upset she needed help dialing and even talking to dispatch. And thankfully the clerk was such a a kind and sweet person and helped her make that phone call. Yeah, I agree with you about that clerk. I am so happy that the clerk helped Jenna make that phone call. And I'm so glad that Jenna was brave enough to make it. Mm -hmm. And this call was the break the task force needed to finally get this piece of shit John Robinson. And that is where we will pick back up next week for part two yeah so stay tuned because we're going to talk about john robinson's total unraveling his arrest the collection of evidence and the trial yeah we still have a lot to cover unbelievably after everything that he did there's still a lot left so it's a two-parter yes so come back next week because we will be here and you don't want to miss the ending to this fucking wild and crazy true crime case and thank you for listening on that note Love yourself, lock your door, and listen to your gut. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.